Last episode, I went to a great deal of effort to explain to you all about seasons and series and why the British and Americans can't agree on what to call the sequential broadcast of a group of related connected entertainments on a regularly recurring schedule. And basically, it all came down to the fact that Charles Dickens and similar popular writers like him began not by writing novels and completed works and then selling them to the public for consumption, but by writing small sections of their stories a bit at a time, which were then printed in the newspapers of the day in installments, while their book publishers gauged public interest. If the public was sufficiently interested in those serialized stories, then it was reasonable to collect the installments into a bound volume and offer them for sale afterwards. The problem, of course, was that it was very expensive to print books if you couldn't be sure how many of them you would sell. It was an awful financial risk, made more so by the fact that the general public had yet to develop the habit of regular reading. Or at least, regular reading for enjoyment. See, up until the Industrial Revolution, casual reading matter didn't really exist for your average man or woman. What reading you did do was reading for a purpose, either to learn something specific or because you had to read it as part of your job or education. The only people who could really devote time to casual reading were those who had nothing else much to do, because they had other people doing it for them. There just wasn't enough time in the day for average Joe or Jane reader to do anything but work, eat, and sleep. Only the elite could afford to set aside time to read, and only the elite could afford to buy the expensive reading material that made it all possible in the first place. Besides, reading for enjoyment was dangerous and immoral, as are many new forms of entertainment down through the ages. Especially immoral and dangerous was reading in bed. After all, you might foolishly set your book down on top of the bedside candle and burn down your house and everyone in it. Or maybe it was just that reading might unreasonably give poor and lower class people the idea that there were other ways of life to which one could aspire. If you read about far-off fantastical places, working to meet your obligations to family and community might not seem so grand and exciting. Certainly not enough to keep you doing it day after an interesting day. Why, you might escape into a fantasy realm for as much as an hour a day. And then what would happen to society as we know it? All this made it very difficult for publishers to build a market for their books, and made publishing fraught with more risk than reward. So knowing how the public might react to offering a novel before going to the trouble of actually offering it made all sorts of sense for the publishers at the time. Serialization was the key, and soon it became one of the best ways to provide not only written entertainment, but by following similar presentation principles, the best way to keep people listening to their radios and later watching their televisions. But in the publishing world's equivalent of parallel evolution, something else came about because of the very same inspiration that brought along newspaper serials, something which changed the reading habits of nations and opened up brand new vistas, even though its origins lay at the end of an 18th century rope. Because you see, what happened was that someone came up with a cheap way to make paper. It was no longer necessary to collect cotton, rags, and linen to make rag paper via a lengthy and labor-intensive process, which was part of the reason paper and therefore books were so expensive. Why go to all the trouble of processing and producing all that rag paper when you could just take some wood, mash it up, spread the resulting slurry thin, and let it dry, thereby creating an inexpensive process for making cheap paper from mashed up wood, 
which meant books were suddenly much less expensive, which meant publishers didn't have to worry so much about sales, because since it only cost a few pennies per book, you didn't have to sell nearly as many to make a profit. Why, you could print almost anything that almost anyone could read, and it didn't even have to be good. In fact, when it came to pulp magazines and books, named after the wood pulp they were made from, the worse it was, the better it was. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. If you attended a public execution in England during the 18th and 19th centuries, two things were certain, provided the execution you were attending was not your own. First, you were definitely going to see someone killed. And second, you could take home one of the most popular, if grim, collectibles of the day. A sheet of paper called a broadside that told you everything you could want to know about the person being executed gave a detailed recounting of their crimes and the trial, and printed the criminal's confession. And it was all illustrated, from crime to trial to execution. Just to make sure no one who bought one of these broadsides thought that a life of crime was the way to go, there would also be a little bit of verse to go with it, reminding folks that crime was indeed bad and the penalty was often death, just like the one you'd witnessed here today. They were the true crime podcasts of the day, and they were available for most every execution from local printers who, because they were so popular, specialized in printing them. In fact, they proved to be so popular that it made financial sense to print up collections of them full of lurid details of the crimes committed. And as literacy rates grew and the English general public began clamoring for more, competition between publishers meant that there was soon a growing market for any sensational stories you could care to dream up. And dream them up they did. The most successful stories frequently featured very little truth, but a whole lot of sensationalism. And soon, just like the stories written by more well-known and respected authors, these too were serialized in specialist papers printed on the new cheap wood pulp paper. For a single penny, you could get 8 to 16 pages full of just the sort of dreadful stories favored by the teeming masses of the lower classes. By the 1830s, these were commonly known as penny dreadfuls. And you wouldn't believe the sorts of stories you could read in a penny dreadful. There was Spring-Heeled Jack, a character who terrorized Victorian women throughout England by leaping out at them, spouting blue flame, and occasionally ripping bits of their clothing with his long claws. To make his escape, Jack would leap over fences as much as ten feet tall and disappear into the London night. While the reports of Jack's activities were certainly real, the individual responsible was neither verified to exist, nor eventually caught. Soon, penny dreadfuls all over England were retelling the tales of Jack and embellishing them until, eventually, Jack became more of a sort of fictionalized heroic character and less of a real-life creep. Similarly, the highwayman, horse thief, and murderer Dick Turpin, who had been a real person executed in 1739 for his crimes, soon had his life mythologized in the dreadfuls of the 1800s until he too attained folk hero status a phenomenon we discussed in our Folk Tales episodes. But more than tales based on real people, 
Those that featured made-up characters capable of superhuman feats of criminality or grotesque horror really fired the public's imagination and became the seeds of stories that reach even to today's world. You'll no doubt be familiar with the story of Sweeney Todd, probably thanks to any number of works based on the original tale up to and including the 2007 Tim Burton film Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, starring Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter, which was itself based on the Sondheim musical. Famously, Todd would murder his customers, and his obliging landlady would turn the corpses into pie-filling. The entirely fictional Sweeney Todd first appeared in the penny-dreadful serial The String of Pearls, which ran from 1846 to 1847. But perhaps the most influential character to come out of the Penny Dreadfuls was a character named Varney. Varney the Vampire, or in all caps, The Feast of Blood, first began publication in 1845 and ran to 232 chapters. Since Varney's authors were paid by the line, they saw no reason not to push the story along for the next two years as long as the paper continued to pay which they would do as long as the public kept reading. The only problem is, the story is kind of a mess. First, the setting isn't really clear. It could be the 18th century, but it might not be since it references the Napoleonic Wars, which had yet to happen. The human characters in the story come and go without much rhyme or reason, one of them simply disappearing in the 36th chapter because the author forgot about him and never mentioned the character again. Varney himself gets a variety of different origin stories over the course of publication, and changes from a mostly monstrous character to a sympathetic one who might or might not be the resurrected form of one Marmaduke Bannerworth, relative of Varney's intended victim, Flora Bannerworth. Or is he Sir Runnagate Bannerworth? The author hardly seems to know which it should be, randomly switching between the two for no apparent reason. By all accounts, Varney the Vampire, or The Feast of Blood, is hardly worth reading at all. Its nearly 900 double-columned pages are exactly as good as you would expect from an author whose main focus was keeping the end as far away from the beginning as he could in order to keep getting paid. Even so, the public ate it up, and the novel, a massive book by all accounts, was published in 1847 when the serial finally ended. However, Varney the Vampire, or The Feast of Blood, did have a significant impact. Fifty years later, Bram Stoker would publish Dracula, acknowledging the debt it owed to Varney and relying on many of the tropes initially established in the massive story. From sharp teeth to hypnotic powers to superhuman strength, they all first appeared in the story of Varney the Vampire. Although, if we're keeping score, Varney did manage to get around in the daylight and was unimpressed by either garlic or crosses. But also consider, Varney was meant to be a sympathetic vampire, or at least became one as the serial continued, one whose condition the reader felt sorry for, a theme which was picked up in later vampire stories from the TV series Dark Shadows to Anne Rice's interview with the vampire to Morbius the Living Vampire of Marvel Comics fame. Even season four of the Netflix series Castlevania references Varney as played by Malcolm McDowell. Eventually, it occurred to publishers that they could gather up numerous separate stories in one magazine while still keeping the costs low. In 1832, the Boys and Girls Penny Magazine, a story paper, was published 
and soon took off, cementing the popularity of the format. By the turn of the century, Penny Dreadfuls had faded out, but the story papers kept going and soon took over the name. The story paper format retained its popularity all the way through to the Second World War, and eventually the format would transition into something new once again. Comic books. However, by the 1860s, a new format of publication was beginning to take a foothold in America, also thanks to cheaply produced wood pulp paper and also inspired by the story papers and the earlier printed serials. Coincident with the Civil War, literacy rates in America were on the rise and the public demand for more reading material saw a similar increase. This opened the door for rapidly printed, extremely cheap novels drawn from similar sources as the more formal and admittedly often more well-written novels from the likes of Charles Dickens. Sensational and fantastical serialized stories in magazines and papers of dubious literary merit were gathered together in cheaply constructed and produced volumes of 100 pages or so and christened dime novels. The first series of dime novels to come out did so under the heading of Beatles dime novels. The initial run reprinted Anne Stevens' earlier serial from Ladies' Companion magazine, Malesko, The Indian Wife of the White Hunter. It sold more than 65,000 copies in the first few months of sales, contained no cover illustration, and was wrapped in a paper cover. It was wildly popular. Other publishers rushed to produce similar volumes and followed the conventions established by Beetle. The initial batch of stories were outlandish, wild affairs, and reprinted many of the earlier American story paper serials of 30 years prior. They tended to focus on frontier stories at first, though original works did make their way onto the pages. In short order, one could read about adventures in the Wild West, on the high seas, on the railway, in the circus, and even prospecting for gold in the American West. But for all their success, dime novels weren't well liked by everyone. Serious literary critics didn't much care for the new and rising popularity, and were as much against the people reading the books as they were the books themselves. After all, you couldn't have just anyone going around and reading things they enjoyed. Literature was a serious matter, written and read by serious people with serious themes and serious things to say. You couldn't have the common person reading such frivolous stories. Why, they might go out and try to have adventures of their own instead of doing the serious work they were meant to do. And think of the children. Why, they might get ideas, and we can't have that now, can we? Well, not those ideas, at least. It's perfectly acceptable to have serious literary ideas, of course. What the popularity of dime novels really did was highlight the growing disparity between the haves and have-nots. They were so cheaply made that they were easily accessible to anyone who cared to buy them, unlike the more worthy literary efforts of the day, which being printed on better paper and bound into more well-constructed books made them much more expensive and kept them out of the hands of the working poor. Anyone who considered themselves a serious author or a serious critic was very much against the idea of letting the masses have access to and read any of the dime novels of the day. Why, if they wanted to read, let them improve themselves by reading the classics, which were clearly not about the sorts of people the masses were likely to encounter and therefore had little relevance to them. Far better were the dime novel heroes, who were frequently people just like the reader who'd made good by either luck or hard work. 
Publishers made their fortunes, giving the newly literate lower classes readable, exciting adventures featuring people like themselves doing things they dreamed of doing. And it hurt not at all that upper-class women were beginning to enjoy them as well for their more romantic turns. In 1882, a man named Frank Muncie managed to convince a New York publisher to begin publishing a magazine he had conceived for children. Initially eight pages long, with a nickel cover price, the slim volume featured stories for children from popular juvenile authors of the day written in the style of the dime novels. Success was limited by the fact, which Murray had failed to take into account, that children did not subscribe to magazines with any kind of regularity or for any length of time. Five months after its debut, the magazine folded and went into receivership. Muncie was owed back pay from the publishers, and through this managed to gain control of the magazine himself. Once again borrowing money from friends, he relaunched the magazine on his own with a few changes, one of which was to change the focus of the magazine from children to adults. The other was to change the name of the magazine. And so, the Golden Argosy became simply the Argosy, and one of the most influential and longest-running pulp magazines began its legendary run. It was the first of its kind, an all-pulp magazine dedicated to the sorts of exciting adventure writing that the public demanded. Between Argosy and its sister publication All Story, which began in 1905, the two magazines defined the pulp magazine genre and made popular the sorts of fantastical stories that were, and still are, poo-pooed by the purveyors of serious literature. Among the many authors appearing in Argosy were early offerings by Upton Sinclair, political activist, Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction, and one-time candidate for governor of California, and Zane Grey, dentist and author of some 90 Western novels. Argosy is even credited with publishing the first female science fiction author, Gertrude Barrows Bennett, and her story, The Curious Experience of Thomas Dunbar. Bennett would later go on to create the dark fantasy genre of writing, with her subsequent offerings to the magazine. Meanwhile, over at All Story, other writers were beginning to establish themselves. Rex Stout, author of the Nero Wolf series of mysteries featuring a corpulent detective who never left his house but deduced the circumstances of the crime by pure intellect, began his writing career with short stories written for All Story and other pulp magazines of the early 1900s. And Max Brand, one of several pseudonyms for Frederick Schiller Faust, wrote short western stories and the Dr. Kildare series for both Argosy and All Story. But for every soon-to-be great author, there were a half-dozen authors whose efforts at writing pulp fiction were less than satisfactory, who, instead of writing incredible tales of imagination, wrote to formula and engaged in every sort of tired cliché available to them. At least, that was the opinion of a hard-luck pencil-sharpener wholesaler with two young children and not enough money to go around. In his spare time, which it seems purveyors of pencil sharpeners had copious amounts of, he took to reading pulp fiction magazines, and by 1911, he'd had more than enough of that. If people were paid for writing rot such as I read in some of those magazines, I could write stories just as rotten. As a matter of fact, although I had never written a story, I knew absolutely that I could write stories just as entertaining, and probably a whole lot more so than any I chanced to read in those magazines. 
and less than a year after setting his sights on the pulp magazines, he sent a thick manuscript off to Allstory, which immediately serialized the story and ran it. And so began the writing career of Edgar Rice Burroughs, with Under the Moons of Mars, later published in book form as A Princess of Mars. A further ten sequels to the original would follow, bringing life to the dead planet. Over the course of his career, Burroughs would send other adventures off to other strange places, including Carson Napier to Venus, David Ennis to the world at the Earth's core Pellucidar, an entire German submarine crew with British captives aboard to the land that time forgot, and dozens of other people to the moon, post-war future America, tiny fictional European kingdoms, the Wild West, and enough other places to fill up more than 80 novels. And of course, his most famous creation of all, Tarzan of the Apes. Burroughs' stories inspired generations of writers to follow in his footsteps. But not just writers. Scientist Carl Sagan was so influenced by Burroughs that he kept a map of the fictional world of Barsoom from the John Carter of Mars novels on the wall outside his office. Ray Bradbury once accorded Burroughs the distinction of the most influential writer in the entire history of the world due to the influence of his work on the youth of the day, saying that by giving romance and adventure to a whole generation of boys, Burroughs caused them to go out and decide to become special. And in truth, the whole of pulp magazines and books, by making themselves available to the masses, probably did more for the imaginations and enjoyment of countless millions of people than all the classical novels of previous generations. Which is not to say that the classical works of literature had nothing to say which might inspire. Rather, their audience was too narrow and too confined by reason of their difficult availability to reach very far. The very cheapness of the pulp novel meant that anyone who wanted one could have one. And it's a good thing, too. As Appendix N at the back of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition shows us, without the influence of the pulps, the game as we know it wouldn't exist. And neither would all the games it inspired, from the tabletop to the computer and everything in between. And to think it all started with an execution. Thanks for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. I'm glad you did. We've read a lot of books, both directly from and inspired by the pulp genre. If you like, head over to Goodreads and find me there to see what's been read and what's waiting to be read. I'll put a link in the description if you're interested. Right now, I've challenged myself to read 52 books in 2022. So far, I'm only nine books in. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, head over to buymeacoffee.com fiddleback and grab a membership spot. If you do, you'll get early episodes and transcripts, and if you are so inclined, you can get in on monthly chats and even bonus episodes. Buymeacoffee.com fiddleback. GM Word of the Week is a Fiddleback production, researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions.
There is real hope for a culture that makes it as easy to buy a book as it does a pack of cigarettes.